0: Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Last week we started a new preaching series just for the month of January in a book of the Bible that maybe you haven't heard taught on all that often. It's not one that comes comes around that much. But it's called The Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, and if you've opened your Bible ever randomly in the middle, there's a good chance you're in the right sort of area, so you might hit Psalms, you might hit Isaiah, but in between them there's a a, a tiny little book called Song of Songs that's eight chapters long, and if you have read it, you'll you'll know it's a bit different to some of the other books in the Bible, because it's not narrative, it's not just telling a story, it's not a, a letter with instructions, but it's poetry and you start reading and you see all the the imagery and it feels quite um deep and intense and evocative and then you read it and you're like oh it's not just any poetry but it's romantic poetry it's eight chapters of a man and a woman sharing how they feel for one another and you're like hang on what's this doing in the bible like why is this here and through history, most of the commentators and teachers and scholars have said, yes, this is telling us something about uh, this man and the woman and the way they felt about one another, but it's also giving us an insight into something else. It's, it's like a portal to show us something of the love that God has for us, his people, like the church in the Bible is called the Bride of Christ. And so we see God's love for us and we see the love that we are invited to have for him. So one of the people who writes about it, a guy called Julian Hardiman, has written a brilliant little book about Song of Songs and and he says, Jesus loves me with the passion of a man for a woman and the Song of Songs illustrates this in extraordinary colours, scents and tastes. It's a music of words to set our souls on fire in response. I love that image, a music of words to set our souls on fire. That's what we're going for. We're not here just to learn a few facts and to have our minds grow, but we're here to have our souls set on fire with love for God. That's what we want to see happen. And so last week we started by seeing her desire for him and we we thought about what is it to desire God? What is it to long for God? What is it to be passionate for closeness with God? Well this week we're going to see something different. We're going to see how she feels about herself. We're going to see the, the self-image that she has and what he has to say about that. And my title today is, you are beautiful, my love. And I was thinking I might do that thing where I get you to turn to your neighbour and say, you are beautiful, my love, and then realised it would get all kinds of weird. So we're not going to do that, unless you particularly want to. But these are the words that he says to her. And it in the song, this is what the groom, the lover, says to the beloved. You are beautiful, my love. But do you know what? She doesn't get it. She doesn't grasp it. It doesn't go in straight away. And that's not all that uncommon, is it? I, I, have you ever been in a situation where you've told someone how amazing they are? You've complimented them. You've praised them. And You've told them things that are true and yet they just don't seem to register it. It doesn't change the way they feel about themselves. That's widespread in our day, isn't it? I read this article on New Year's Day 2023 in The Guardian by Amelia Hill, and uh, she, she wrote this, and I wonder if you recognise what she's talking about. I wonder if you've seen these things play out. She's talking about uh, young people, and she says three out of four children as young as 12 dislike their bodies and are embarrassed by the way they look and that increases to 8 in 10 young people aged 18 to 21 maybe uh, you've seen these same trends in friends that you've talked to and the way people speak and then she goes on and says nearly half of all children and young people aged from 12 to 21 questioned said that they've become withdrawn started exercising excessively stopped socializing completely or self-harmed because they're regularly bullied or trolled online about their physical appearance. Isn't that heartbreaking? Isn't that absolutely tragic? It brought to mind a a 2019 study done by someone called John Rankin Wendell, that he called Selfie Harm. And in this, he got 15 teenagers and asked them to take a selfie of themselves. So, um, I mean, who else would you take a selfie of? So they got their selfie, right? And once they'd taken it, the the photo was brought up on a computer screen and they had this whole suite of editing tools and they could do whatever they wanted to the photo to make it social media ready. And then they got to work on these photos of themselves with... The tools and of these fifteen teenagers, how many of them do you think edited the photo of themselves fifteen every single one and the kinds of things that I think we 've got some examples on here and these are some of the kinds of changes that they were making so it 's things like making their eyes bigger, their noses smaller, and their skin brighter because what they were saying is this photo of me as I am that won't suffice I need to be changed I need to be different to be worthy of being on social media and honestly I know that at that age I would have done exactly the same thing Uh, it's something many of us I think can Identify with. And that's kind of the feeling this woman in the Song of Songs has. So we're going to read. We're going to jump back into chapter one. If you've got your Bible with you, open it to Song of Songs. If you are looking on an app or something, Song of Songs. Or it might be called Song of Solomon. Depends on the translation you've got. And we're going to pick it up from chapter one, verse five. And this is her speaking about herself. I'm just going to read two verses. So she says, I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept." Now, when we read these verses, don't hear them in racial terms. Uh, Her ethnicity was Arabian, most of the commentators think. That's not what she's talking about here. She is talking about her insecurities. She acknowledges that she's beautiful. She knows she has a natural beauty about her. But A couple of times, she says, I'm I'm dark. There's something that she's not quite um, happy with. She's, She's referring to it because it's making her insecure. Let me explain why and what it's about. and put it in its cultural. Context. I'll tell you about me. I love summer. This time of year, not a big fan of, but the summer, I am all over it when the sun is shining. I remember uh, about a year and a half ago, we had the hottest day on record. And so I thought, this is brilliant. The sun is shining. It's like 37 degrees. I've got some work to do. So I'm going to take my notepad. I'm going to take a book. I'm going to take a blanket and a big old bottle of water. And I'm going to go down to the park. And I'm just going to work in the scorching heat. Everyone will be doing the same it's totally crowded. No, there wasn't everyone doing the same. It was me in this big park. Everyone else had concluded, yeah, it's a bit too hot today. I like it hot, but not this hot. So I was there on my own in this park because of how hot it is. But I love it. I can't get enough of the sun and being out in it and just enjoying the the rays. Whereas My wife, on the other hand, many of you might know Emma, some of you might not, but she grew up in southern India. And the thing about southern India is getting a day at 37 degrees when the sun is shining... It's not a rarity. It's not like a treat, a one-off, like, wow, the sun's out. I'm going to go and lie in it. But the sun is out all the time. And when the sun's out all the time, you relate to the sun a little bit differently. You value the shade. You value staying inside where it's a much more reasonable temperature. And so Emma has a very different attitude to the sun to what I do. She doesn't like going out in the sun when it's too hot. Uh, And she will often use this phrase, perhaps you've heard it, only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. Well, here's me, Mr. Englishman mad dog guy who loves a bit of it. In fact, we've even had times on holiday where we're going to the beach and we've had to find the exact line where the shade starts. So we can sit next to each other, but I can be there sunbathing and Emma can be there reading her book in the shade. And we have to do that because we view the sun differently. Well, the Song of Songs was written in the Middle East. It was written in a hot place. It was similar to southern India in that way. And and the culture was this. You go out in the sun when you have to, you don't do it, through choice. And what that meant is the people who were richer, the people who were were more privileged, they got to stay inside and have other people running around after them in the sun, whereas the people who were poorer, who had a lower status, had to go and uh, often work outside or do the errands or whatever they needed to do. They needed to go out in the sun all the time. And so people who go out in the sun, obviously the sun uh, will then burn the skin or tan the skin or whatever it will do to their skin. That's what was going on here. It was a marker that you were lower status. It was a marker that you, you weren't rich, you weren't privileged, you weren't highly thought of in that society. She says her brothers had made her the keeper of the vineyards. So she'd had to, to graft. She'd had to work outside long hours in the hot, scorching sun. And she said, so my own vineyard I haven't kept. I haven't had time to, to pamper myself. I haven't had time to, uh, to take care of myself, to do all these beauty treatments you might be expected. So when it comes to this love relationship, I'm just a bit insecure about how I'm looking. I've not been able to uh, make myself look the way I would like to for you. So she's approaching full of insecurity. This this bride, she sees herself as tarnished. And perhaps some of you resonate with that feeling. Perhaps some of you might feel the same way. This is a spiritual book, remember. We're thinking about our relationship with God. And maybe as some of you approach that relationship with God, you think, actually, I'm a bit tarnished here. I'm a bit um, blemished. There there, there are reasons why I'm insecure coming into God's presence. Perhaps as you think about it, you'd say the same as she would say, do not gaze upon me because. And then you'd finish that sentence. Well, how, how would you finish that sentence? Do not gaze upon me because maybe what comes to mind is a particular mistake you've made in the past. Maybe there's something that you've done, and we, we know we all sin, but maybe you're thinking, yeah, but mine, mine was a big one. Mine was something, mine was a whopper. Do not gaze upon me because of this thing that I have done. It's tarnished me, it's affected me in a big way. Or maybe you're thinking of the ongoing struggles, not just the sin of the past, but maybe the stuff that you're struggling with now, the shame of getting drawn back into the same things again and again and again. Why can't I just shake this? Do not gaze upon me because of this. So perhaps it's, it's not stuff that you're doing. Perhaps it's things that have happened to you. Perhaps you feel blemished or ruined or unwantable because of things that have happened in life. Do not gaze upon me because maybe it's the general chaos of having a life where you just know I don't have my stuff together. I'm a bit of a mess at the moment. Don't gaze upon me because of that. Or maybe you've faced rejections at the hands of other people. Maybe you've been dismissed. Maybe you've been treated like you're worthless and rubbish and so Well, how could God love me if even other people just cast me aside? Maybe you identify with some of those teenagers from the article at the start, and maybe you don't like the way you look, or you don't like the way you sound, or you don't like where you've landed in life. And all of it piles on and piles on and makes you fearful for how other people might view you. And how God might view you, do not gaze upon me because I don't like what you'd see if you do. Or maybe it's just that you feel a bit ordinary, you're just normal, you don't feel like anything special. Why would he look upon me? I'm just an ordinary person. And this bride in the Song of Songs feels exactly the same as that. Let's flip to chapter 2 and the start of the chapter And hear what she says about herself. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. That sounds nice, doesn't it? That sounds beautiful. It's like, isn't that nice self-talk? Well, the, the thing about a rose of Sharon and a lily of the valleys, it's not that they're unattractive. There's nothing wrong with these. They're pretty enough as flowers go. But that's not the metaphor she's going for. She's picking the flowers that were all over the place. These were everywhere. They were ten a penny. These were the most common flowers in that part of the world at that time. So she's, it's like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm okay. I'm like a common daisy. That would be the, the English equivalent. She's not picking out something fancy and special. She's picking out something everyday and ordinary to compare herself to. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you think, that's all right, I'm, I'm nothing special. There are other people who if God was going to shower his love on someone, he'd shower his love on them, not on me. I can think of certain friends who are absolutely smashing it in their faith. God would love them. Oh, uh, or, or there are certain leaders who uh, who were at the front, who are, who were singing, who were leading stuff, who were cast a vision. Yeah, God would love them. Or maybe it's certain Christians you've seen on the internet, and it looks like they're completely bossing it, which is easy to do on the internet when people don't see the real bits of life, right? But uh, maybe you look on people, well, yeah, God would love them. Not me. I'm just ordinary, right? But how does he respond to her? Let's read the next verse he says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among maidens. He's he's saying to me, you stand out. If you're a lily, great, but then everyone around you is brambles, so you still stand out. You are special to me. When I see you, my eyes are drawn to you. You make all the others pale into insignificance. I don't know if you've ever done the thing where you've seen a group photo and there are loads of people on it and there's someone you kind of fancy. Who do your eyes go to? You ignore all the others and they zoom in on the one who you like, right? And he's saying, "To, to me, you're the lily among brambles. You stand out. You're the one who I'm looking at. And then she feels the same way about him in verse three, as an apple tree among the trees of the wood. So is my beloved among young men. So let's kind of go deeper. Let's see how he really feels about her. And then we're going to jump in to chapter four in a minute. This is the poetry from their wedding day. So chapters three and four are all about their wedding. And this is like the speech that he, he gives. And as Jason Roach points out, a groom in his wedding speech doesn't pretend that his wife is just the same as every other woman. That would be a really awkward wedding, wouldn't it? If the groom was like, yeah, 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 you're fine, like all the rest of them are. That would be terrible. He says that would be ludicrous. Instead, he deliberately picks out those things that bring him joy and he celebrates them. And that's exactly what this groom does in the Song of Songs. And he does it using what's called... A wasp. I don't know if you've heard of one of those before. W-A-S-F. This was a form of poetry that was common in the Middle East. And uh, what he he does is he he basically praises every part of her from top to bottom. And he describes what he likes. And most of it is metaphor. So he's not trying to give us a a physical representation of what she actually looks like. You know, if you tried to, to take these descriptions and do a drawing of her, it would be crazy. You wouldn't know what to put where but he's trying to evoke feelings so as we read it just try and get swept up in how he feels don't worry about the the strangeness of some of the metaphors okay so chapter four from verse one how beautiful you are my love how very beautiful your eyes are doves behind your veil your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the wash all of which bear twins, and not one among them is bereaved. Your lips are like a crimson thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in courses. On it hang a thousand bucklers, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will hasten to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amarna, from the peak of Senia and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You have ravished my heart with a glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How sweet is your love, my sister, my bride. I wonder, did you... Pick up, did you notice there how he feels about her? Did you did you catch the sense of it? Verse one, how beautiful you are, my love. How very beautiful. Verse seven, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Verse nine, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. Remember, this is a spiritual book and we're reading it in a spiritual way way. So these words that he speaks to her are the same words that Jesus will speak to his church, that he will speak to you and he will speak to me. How beautiful you are, my love. There is no flaw in you. You have ravished my heart. Sometimes I think we don't understand this. Sometimes we talk about the love of God in a conceptual way. It's like, I know that in theory, he loves me. It's like charity. It's like a compromise on his part. It's like, oh, go on then. All right, I I'll love them. If I have to, this whole cross thing, I get how it works. Yeah, their sin's gone. Fine, I love them. Happy now. We think it works like that. It doesn't work like that. We've got to understand that Jesus loves us, that he cherishes us, that he's delighted in us. He's the besotted groom. That's how he looks upon us. The one who's thrilled at his beloved, the one who looks and is like, wow, you're beautiful. There's no flaw in you. You've ravished my heart. That's what Jesus would say to you today if you're a believer in this room. There's no flaw in you. I love you. You're beautiful. This is his beating heart for us. He loves you, not because it's compulsory, but because he absolutely adores you. He desires you. He rejoices in you. He loves the socks off you. Zephaniah speaks of God rejoicing over you with gladness, exulting over you with loud singing. That's his heart for you. That's what I want you to get this morning. Now, maybe you're you're sitting there thinking, well, that sounds nice. Is this one of those self-esteem talks then? Is that what we're doing? Is this a bit of a like, yeah, you're awesome, go you kind of message? And let me say this, right? Esteem, when it's based on the love of Christ for you, is not a bad thing. Okay, Let's not be suspicious of that. But maybe your, your point remains. Maybe you, you'd say, you, look, you know those things that we listed earlier, that do not gaze upon me because. It's not like they're false. It's not like those things aren't in play. We have all sinned, and our sin does mar the image of God. And we see as we read the Bible, this isn't small. It's not trivial and insignificant. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we're deceived, and the truth is not in us. So that's true the sin is there and yet the heavenly bridegroom can and does say you're altogether beautiful there's no flaw in you. How does that work? How can he say that when we're so messed up so flawed and so tarnished? And the answer is the gospel. The gospel is the answer to that question. Charlie cleverly helps us here. He says there are four reasons for this loving, positive assessment. First is the finished work of Christ. Second is the gift of the Holy Spirit, who moves our heart to be born from above and become children of God. We cannot overestimate how beautiful this is to God. Third, the nature of God's personality, which is the Hesed covenant love of God for his people. And fourth, our destiny as his future bride. Let me just explain those four things briefly. So firstly, the finished work of Christ. This has been called the great exchange. So he went to the cross. He took all our sin, all our flaws, all our blemishes and tarnishment. He took it all on himself and he gave us his perfect, beautiful righteousness in exchange. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how he can say there is no flaw in you. What flaw could there possibly be in you when he's taken it all on himself and gone to the cross and had it crucified with him? What flaw could there be? He's taken it. He's given you perfect righteousness. Second one then that cleverly points out is the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the work that God's doing on the inside. He transforms us. He beautifies us. He makes us new. This isn't the basis of our acceptance with God. It's what he does once we've been accepted through the cross. And Jesus uses the picture of a tree with fruit. The inside's been changed. And because the inside of the tree is different what comes out, the fruit in our lives will change. It won't be the same stuff that comes out. He's making us new. And in the New Testament, it tells us what the fruit that's grown by the Holy Spirit in our lives will be. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we see these things increasingly in ourselves and in other people, there's a beauty in it that thrills the heart of God. Third one then that he points out is the nature of God's personality. And he speaks of this word hesed, love. This is a committed, covenant, tender love. I think there's a great analogy in the wedding vows that people make. When I got married, I made a vow for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and say no matter what, this love stays strong. No matter what I'm in, I'm committed to being in. I'm committed to loving you. I've promised it. And that's the kind of love that God has for us. It's the kind of love that melts away the insecurities. When you're living in that kind of covenant of love, you don't negotiate away the points. You don't say, well, yeah, you are a bit flawed, actually. Yeah, you're blemished. I like this bit, but this bit's touched. You don't do that. That's not how this kind of love works. Maybe you've heard the phrase, blinded by love it's not actually a bad thing. like when you look at someone you're like, there is no flaw in you you're altogether beautiful to my eyes you're absolutely incredible. that's a good thing. and that's how jesus looks at his people. it's how he looks at you. it's how he looks at me. it doesn't hang on whether we've got it all together. it hangs on his character, his committed covenant love for us. and then finally, He talks about our destiny as the bride of Christ, the church. On that day when Jesus returns for eternity, the wedding feast of the lamb will be forever with him. In Revelation 21, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. He's talking about us, the church here, coming down out of heaven. From God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Where it's all heading is the day when the bride comes and as the people of God, everyone's like, wow, you're adorned, you're beautiful. We know that's how weddings go, right? We we know that experience of like getting there early, being in the seats, like milling around for a while, but waiting until the bride appears and suddenly there's stunned silence and she's readied herself for that day. She's spent ages picking out a dress, doing her hair, doing her makeup, getting perfectly ready for that day where everyone's like, wow. And then you look and you see the look in the eyes of the grooming. You see he's just completely besotted by her. That's a picture of the final day. That's a picture of that day when the people of God have been readied and beautified. And that look in the eyes of Jesus, wow, my bride. The groom, that's Jesus, can say to you, he can say to me, he can say to us, you are beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You have ravished my heart. I wonder if you can hear these words. I wonder how they register with you. I wonder what kind of barriers and resistance your heart might be putting up as you hear him say, you are beautiful. There is no flaw in you. It's almost like he's singing the song of songs back to us. You know, last week we were talking about the love we have for him and the way we might express that. But do you hear him singing back to you? The great preacher Charles Spurgeon thought on this idea And he's imagining what Christ would say to us. I love these words. So just maybe close your eyes and just picture Jesus speaking these words over you. You have praised me. I will praise you. You think much of me. I think quite as much of you. You use great expressions for me And I will use just the same for you. You say my love is better than wine. And so is yours to me. You say my word is sweeter than honey to your lips. So is yours to mine. All that you can say of me, I say it to you. I see myself in your eyes. I can see my own beauty in you. And whatever belongs to me, belongs to you. Therefore, oh my love, I will sing back the song. You have sung it to your beloved, and I will sing it to my beloved. You have sung it to your husband, and I will sing it to my sister, my spouse. Thanks for listening. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media and you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode from our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, Please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk. We look forward to connecting you.